This is WIUXLP Bloomington. You're listening to American Student Radio. I'm your host, Jenna Jankowski. Each week, we select a theme, and our producers bring you stories on that theme. On today's show, we're exploring the divide between what we imagine in our minds and ill-fated reality. I think it's pretty common for one's expectations to be let down. It's impossible to know precisely how any experience is going to play out, and when you don't have that definite answer, it's easier to manufacture an image in your head that leaves you content rather than facing the disappointment that's most likely coming anyways. It's almost too easy for me to create an unrealistic fantasy of what could happen and yet still be devastated when it doesn't go how I had hoped. In the upcoming half hour, whether it's training for the Little 500, getting your Ph.D., Going on a Tinder date or grabbing a bite at a food truck, there is no way to predict the outcome. From Bloom... From... Uh, again, live... Li- what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. We often expect food to be the bridge between cultures, but in our first piece, ASR producer Angelo Bautista takes us to a place where Filipino food and American food get a little complicated. A food truck sits on a small family-owned trash facility along a busy highway just outside of Nashville, Indiana, population 1,067. Inside is where you'll find Ginger Ale Knight. Yes, Ginger Ale, that's her name cooking cheeseburgers, pork tenderloins, and lumpia, Filipino spring rolls. Okay, thank you. Dave, order up, please. It's a one-woman ship with some occasional help from her daughter, Francesca. If you ask Ginger, she never thought this is where she would end up. No, 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 not really. I mean, it's never been, I never dreamed to have a American husband. (laughs) Ginger tells me that in 2011, she was working as a barista at a Malaysian resort. A newlywed classmate of hers emailed her, saying that her husband's boss, a man named John from Indiana, was looking to meet a Filipino woman. This is the time we started emailing. Uh, He started calling me. A year later, they were able to obtain a fiancé visa, which lets you into the States if you're engaged to a U.S. citizen. Um, After a year, we talked every, every morning and evening. By the time she got here, I, I knew that she was she would be the one. <laughs> they married in less than a month of meeting in person. Now, Ginger's story is not uncommon. In fact, in 2016, the Philippines accounted for 18% of all fiancé visas issued. That's more than any other country. Years later, Ginger found herself working at a local candy store and pregnant with their first son, Chase. John spent his days working the family trash business, and at home, John noticed something. Ginger loved to watch Food Network. It's the great food truck race. And then I was watching this food truck wars. And then suddenly he was looking in the internet and then looking for a food truck. And I was surprised. What are you doing? John sold his motorcycle, bought an old trailer, and Johnny's Grub to Go was born. Now Ginger had a place to do what she loved, and the Nashville man had a place to drop off his trash and grab a bite to eat. Cheeseburgers, hot dogs, barbecue, just kind of a working guy's lunch. And And the Filipino food? 
the lumpia, pancit, and porcadobo? Uh, that was Ginger's. <laughs> I, I was telling her how I knew it wouldn't sell. There's no, not, not here in Brown County, and I was definitely wrong. <laughs> Nashville is a small tourist town known for its rustic charm and southern Indiana hills. And much like the rest of Indiana, it's fairly conservative, with most of the town voting Republican and in the last election for Donald Trump. Kind of food, right? Yeah, Asian food and now, Filipino are you from food. The Philippines? Yeah. How is how do you have family down there? Yeah. Did they do all right in the storm? Yeah. Good. They are. Because that, that was mess, wasn't it? For many of the people in Brown County, this was their first taste of Pinoy culture. But for a few of them, a love of Filipino culture was there before the food truck. I think three of them, they are asking me about how to cook sinigang or how to cook this. Wait, so are people, people are asking you how to cook their own Filipino food? I think the one guy has a girl, Filipino girlfriend. That's why she's, he's obsessed with the Filipino culture. And another one has a Filipino girlfriend too. So I think they're trying to impress their girlfriend. So they ask me if they did it right. While I was there, one of these men with a long-distance Filipino girlfriend stopped by to drop off some food he made for Ginger. Lechon kawali. Oh! Ah, lechon kawali. Hey, you know lechon kawali? Yeah. <laughs> he made it! You want barbecue? I have barbecue. His name is W.C. Miller. I sat with him at a picnic table while he waited for his cheeseburger. And let me tell you, he knows how to cook a lot of Filipino food. What, do, what, have, what have you made so far? Uh, Magnet, lechon, koali, barbecue pork, adobo. His fascination with the Philippines goes back to his great-grandfather, who fought in the Philippine-American War in 1899. And Oh my god, That's, you, you know how to make more stuff than I do. <laughs> like John, W.C. met his girlfriend on the internet, but on a Facebook discussion page about Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte whose brutal crackdown on drugs resulted in thousands of extrajudicial killings. What is it about Duterte that you gravitate towards or that you find yourself... Um... He's a man for the people. He's not there to play politics. He's not there to get reelected. He's there to do a job. He doesn't give a f- what people think. He's going to do what it takes to get the job done, and he has the people, at fir- people in mind first and everyone else second. That's what I admire the most about him. That, and he calls it like he sees it. It sounds a little familiar, wouldn't you think? It's not just Duterte that WC agrees with politically, but the cultural values of the Philippines. If you really boil it down, if you take uh, Filipinos from the province and you take you know, people from the country, we're no different. I mean, I wish America still had the values the Philippines does. Sure, a lot of people are poor, but they're happy. When's the last time you saw an American that wasn't a disgusting, overweight, fat ass that was happy? I mean, we, we've forgotten our family. We've forgotten God. You know, look at us. And those are the values you respect in the Philippines? So you... Yeah, it's what I grew up with. This country isn't what I started out in. You know, I just think it's kind of interesting that there's this sort of cultural sharing going on in such a small town like Nashville. Because, you know, I feel like we tend to undersell small towns for being, you know, accepting or of, you know, other people's cultures and things like that. Well, I think that's a fallacy perpetuated by the media in today's hostile political environment. I voted for Trump. I've been called a hillbilly, a racist, a redneck, and every other thing because I don't agree with some liberal asshat's point of view. Fuck them. Have you ever been met with any kind of prejudice or racism at all? 
No, I'm glad. Uh, there's no, there's nothing. I mean, uh, they they embrace me like their own. They love my culture. If if they eat our food, they can taste the love. That's what they said. <laughs> Johnny's Grub to Go is in some ways the center of a paradox where Filipino and small town conservative values meet, but at the same time sits in a town that voted for a candidate at odds with immigrant culture. A candidate that said he would not rule out eliminating fiancé visas after the shooting in San Bernardino. A candidate that once labeled the Philippines as a terrorist nation. One of my uncles is Jewish, another one's Muslim, one of my best friends is black, but I'm a racist. Really? All because I voted for a guy? I don't get it. For American Student Radio, I'm Angela Batista. Okay, full disclosure, this is my story coming up. It's about Little 500. I know what you're thinking, another story about IU's biggest party weekend. But this is different, I promise. It's day two of the Little Five fall cycling series. It was time for the next event, the Street Sprints, a 200-meter sprint down Kirkwood. Myself and four other girls were next up to race. I jumped up and down in place trying not to focus on anything. The pressure of doing well was weighing down. We walked up to the starting line, and I balanced on my bike as someone held the back seat upright for me. Time moved slowly. Seconds felt like years. But then I finally hear it. Ready, set, go. I pushed forward with everything I had. 60 seconds to push as hard as I could. It was only four blocks. I wasn't focused on the girls on either side of me. All I could think about was breathing and pushing through every stride I made until I reached that finish line. Among the crowds cheering, I could hear my own teammates screaming my name. Once I crossed that white line, I felt this immediate surge of energy, adrenaline. I wanted to do it again. I didn't want that to be the end. I wanted to go faster, and I knew I could go faster. It was in that moment I realized just how much blood, sweat, tears, and more tears I would be shedding over the next eight months. That's right, people, I am training for the little five. I noticed I was getting the same, no, you're not, bitch, reaction from friends about doing this. For those who know me know that I don't take discipline well, or really any type of commitment well. But I'm a fifth-year senior, so this is it. No more chances. I cannot delay this dream anymore. So I found a team, and here I am. For those of you who only know the little five as a weekend of binge drinking, let me give you a small history review. It's a bike race that's modeled after the Indianapolis 500. It began in 1951. The men's race is 50 miles, so 200 laps, and the women's race is 25 miles, 100 laps. Only four members from a team are able to race, and training usually begins right off the bat in the fall and continues on until race day at the end of April. That's nine months of training, six days a week. As you can already tell, I am what feels like on a roller coaster ride. I have those moments of clarity, knowing I want to be the best I can be and race as hard as I possibly can, to other moments of self-doubt, questioning if I should be putting all my time into biking for a race I may not even participate in. It's not what I expected in a lot of ways, so I turned to two of my friends, one a former rider and the other is my teammate. First, you will hear from one of my beautiful teammates, Chase Wishmeyer. I asked her about the Little Five community, how the competition works within teams, finding a coach, and why it's all worth it. This is going into my third year of Little Five. I went to the women's race and saw all the women racing, and I was like, I can do this. 
I think that having good relationships with your teammate can make or break the success of the team just because you're around each other so much um, and you put in so much hard work together that, I mean, I just think as long as you get along, like everything else will kind of fall into place. I think it just helps us push each other even more and it makes us faster. It's like we want to win. We're a competitive team. And at the same time, like, we want to beat each other, and we want to we want to push each other to be the best te- overall team that we can be. I absolutely love the Little Five community. It's hard to explain because there's nothing like it. You know, all the teams, while you're competitive and you want to beat all the other teams, like you're still friends. Everyone's always super supportive. Um, and like, if I I know if I ever needed anything, I could go to almost any other team, and there'd be someone there like willing to help. I was expecting to stick with it throughout my college career, but I didn't realize initially how big of a time commitment it was, which I ended up being able to make it work, but that was there's definitely an adjustment period there. Next, from a former writer, Mary-Kate Pachars. Her experience, on the other hand, was not as blissful. She spoke out about why she decided not to train another year, her coach's involvement, and if she would ever do it again. At the end of spring break, I was actually chosen to ride in the race, but then based on the spring series of ITTs and missing out, um, I was replaced by another rookie. So it was like, not even like I just flat out wasn't able to race, but I was initially told I was, so it was even more of a blow. I rode in quals, but not in the race. I felt like it was a really cool tradition, like something very unique to IU and something that I would never get to be a part of. And it's definitely, you get drawn into it. Um, it's kind of a subculture of IU, the cyclist. And I met a lot of cool people. I don't necessarily regret doing it. Um, I think it's a learning experience. I think that throughout the entire year, there was just this tension, like, oh, like, who's going to end up riding? And especially, like, trying to get close with people on your team. Like, to be a unified team, you need to, like, trust everyone. And just that level of competitiveness is like, uh, like you're already competing against other teams. Like, you don't want to have animosity towards your own teammates. And I didn't really know the girls on the team, so I was like, this is a good way to meet people and just, like, another thing to get involved in outside of Greek life because that can definitely be, like, a bubble. And so that was kind of my expectation. And the reality, I think, I did meet a lot of new people, and it was really cool to learn a bit about something I didn't know much about. But the competitive aspect... It is very competitive, like it's almost like semi-pro or something. It's like very, I mean, not all teams are, but the teams that do take it seriously, like it's not a joke. I think it's safe to say that I can definitely relate to both Chase and Mary-Kate. My last four little fives consisted of drinking, and to be honest, I didn't even know where Bill Armstrong Stadium was until this fall. There are so many aspects and phases that a rider goes through during the process of training. You're mentally and physically tested. I don't think there was anything anyone could have said to prepare me for this. I still can't explain the butterflies-in-your-stomach adrenaline rush you get when you're racing. That feeling drives me to want to ride six days a week. I want to push myself not so much on a physical aspect, but also just perseverance-wise. This is hands down the longest commitment I have done besides school, literally. I want to see what I'm physically capable of doing. And to be honest, I think I needed a little kick in the butt before I get out into the real world. I can ride my bike with no handlebars, no handlebars, no handlebars. I can ride my bike with no handlebars, no handlebars, no handlebars. In this next piece, ASR producer Emily Miles recounts her history with Tinder 
As you probably know, there are a lot of expectations involved in dating apps, but Emily's went a little deeper than whether or not her date would pay for the coffee. In the winter of 2016, I sat in a Starbucks, writing and rewriting a letter. Dear Mark, I've read your letter enough times that it's pretty well burned into my head. I've thought about what I'm going to say in response for hours, every day, though I guess the reply has really been forming like a cloud for a few years. As I write now, I'm listening to music from the movie Carol, like I have to, like I haven't been for weeks. The first song is Smoke Rings. The second is Silver Bells. I get through the whole playlist and start over. When Mark and I wrote each other, we usually mentioned what we were listening to. This time, I figured Mark would look up the movie Carol, and then he'd really get what I was trying to say. To understand what it meant for me to send this letter, I have to take you back three and a half years. I was 17 and in need of independence. I had a little Dodge, satellite radio, and a long highway from Evansville to Bloomington. For as long as I could remember, I'd been looking for the romance I'd seen in movies and TV. I couldn't understand why the boys at school didn't value me, why I wasn't valuable. As an only child with quiet parents, I turned to the internet for solutions. I swam in the sea of catfish that was Craigslist. But still, nothing. And then, in my car that day, it was like I finally heard the answer to my romance problems. I scanned the satellite radio stations and landed on one dedicated to sex. I heard the adult film star, Christy Canyon, tell a story of how she met a guy on this new app, Tinder. I thought, if Christy can do it, so can I. But not yet. I glanced at my flip phone in the passenger seat. I expected the app to give me a man with whom I'd have some magical mutual attraction, even though I might never have actually liked a boy before. A few weeks later, my aunt took me to get the iPhone 5. It's not like I'd spent days dreaming about the romantic possibilities of Tinder, but it was the first app I downloaded. This was Tinder when there was no cap on swiping right, and it seemed like there was no cap on young men in my 100-mile radius. Each man was another possibility, another rush. I felt validated as a woman in the world, albeit my very small, Catholic, Southern Indiana world. The first guy I went on a Tinder date with was a sweet young man named Jake. We went to the 4-H fair. He asked me to be his girlfriend. I panicked and said yes. He hugged me for a long time. A few days later, I made him pancakes, sausage, and chocolate milk, and told him it wasn't going to work out. I kept matching. In a year's time, I climbed a grain silo, got lots of coffee, and showed a few guys off to my family. Thinking back on them, they all blend into this, like, mass of beautiful man I was supposed to want. They were rich and strong smart and kind. I loved the way one drove me around in his brand new Corvette, and I was in awe of the boy who came to my grandma's birthday and took me swing dancing on Valentine's Day. It was everything I was supposed to want, but it never felt right. 
My senior year of high school, I faked sinus infections and bronchitis to avoid kissing them. Look for the silver lining When a cloud appears in the blue And then I left for Indiana University, which is not small or Catholic and does not feel like Southern Indiana. It seemed like a different world, and I was ready to embrace new possibilities. Fall of my freshman year, I opened my Tinder settings and switched from men only to both men and women. It was a safe, secret way to see who was out there, who I could flirt with and not feel predatory about it. I didn't feel like I had to assume heteronormative things because she swiped right too. She was an artist, a poet, and a couple years older. We watched indie movies in her room, we held hands, and I felt my heart beat. She told me about an upcoming film called Carol, and of course I wanted to see it with her. But after a few months, things fizzled, and I watched Carol for the first time in early January, pirated, at midnight, in the dark living room of my parents' house, alone. And do you live alone, Therese Balavet? I do. Well, there's Richard. He'd like to live with me. Oh, no, it's nothing like that. I mean, he'd like to marry me. I see. And would you like to marry him? Well, I barely even know what to order for lunch. So I went back to swiping and matching men. Some of the guys were the type that try to make out with you in the middle of an episode of Broad City. Some of the guys left no impression at all. Some of the guys became the kind of friend who makes pozole and climbs a tree with you at 4 a.m. One of the guys was Mark. So I, I'm going to read your bio that uh, I swiped right to. IU Bloomington journalism student, coffee drinker, animal whisperer, bicycle rider, music curator. I'll probably like your sister more than I like you. Short story. My friends were swiping around on my Tinder as I sang pieces of the Mamas and the Papas jams. They came across your profile and, knowing me, read it aloud. My friend Jonathan brought his hand to his chest and said it was too much pressure to message you, as he had jokingly started conversations with others. He didn't want to mess this one up. So he returned my phone, and I'm saying hello, partially because an English teacher once told me I sound like Beowulf when I write fictional pieces. Emily, I feel we ought to meet for coffee. Would you like me to give you my number? Me first. We went on a coffee date, and then another. Mark texted me pictures of little notes and drawings, and we exchanged long letters. So, um, as always, after our outings, we would sort of text back and forth a bit. And then I remember with the last text exchange, I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite expressly articulate why, but it seemed a little ambiguous if you were... Um, we're going to keep going on outings next semester. I just remember over, I think it was Thanksgiving when I asked, you know, to, you know, I'm very polite, I always ask. You know, I asked if I could send you a letter over Thanksgiving. And um, I know I remember that your response was, oh yeah, sure, I would love that. And then this time around for Christmas, you know, I asked, and then you said, you can do whatever you'd like. And I was like, shoot, the, to the, the tone of that's a little different. Silver bell. First paragraph, Merry Christmas. Second paragraph, <laughs> this really isn't about Christmas, but it's okay because I've acknowledged that up front. And then I just talk about how I 
just really like you know just how i really liked you and wanted to see you again but hey either way thank you for the impact you've had on my life and that was how i closed he sent the letter first class mail i read it on my living room couch i looked at my mother and said well i've got to be honest so i went to starbucks drank a lot of coffee and wrote a letter back Friday night of finals week, a girl named Hannah slid on an icy sidewalk away from my house toward an Uber driver named Mark. I said to her that Marks never know what's up. Then I thought of you, who clearly know what's up. That was my immediate impression of you. This man's strange, and he knows what's up. I'm disappointed in myself because, with all your insight into the way people work, you couldn't have known the problem with me. You couldn't have known why Jonathan was messing around with my Tinder that night. Why I didn't care what men thought of me. He read your bio and I thought, well, maybe this time I'll care. If not this time. Never. Remember when we parked at Lake Monroe and a girl named Sasha occupied the next dock over with a boy? I didn't like him. And I didn't know him. I cringed at their laughter and tried to focus on something stable. You. I did my best to focus on a good person. You. Remember when we were sitting on your couch, and I flopped around about that same Sasha? I wore my black lace dress, a former New Year's Eve garment. It was the first time I'd dressed up for a man since high school. I think I wore two perfumes. I was in awe of you but I was afraid you'd try to kiss me. Of course you didn't. And when I walked into my house, Sophia raised her eyebrows. She knew where I'd been, and that I shouldn't have. Vinny knew too, and so did Audrey. Laurel didn't care, and Naomi understood. Remember when we were in Soma, and a guy named Tristan came up and flapped around about some LGBT journalist activism something? My face felt hot. The next day, he caught me in the wide-open part of the media school, in a sea of great red chairs. He apologized for mentioning my association with the group, since it's easy for a comfortable person to forget the carefully obscured parts of another. The forcefully rejected, aversely accepted, parts of another. Remember when you stepped away for a moment to use the restroom at the Cheshire Cafe? I got a message on my phone. I ran to Sophia's table and knelt. Do you know this girl, Hannah? Uh, sort of. She just asked me to coffee. Just now. Of all times. Really. That Sunday, Hannah and I met at Soma and talked about our families mostly. Neither of us had the time, but we stayed for hours. At the end, I told her I'd see her around. She laughed and echoed. No sooner than I'd driven home and opened my computer did she send me a text. She'd had a good night tonight, with a smiley face at the end. And so had I. Friday night of finals week, that girl named Hannah slid into the passenger seat of my car. Our immediate destination was Anatolia. We ordered the same big dolma. She insisted on paying. We agreed to go to my favorite spot on Lake Monroe, which just happened to be her favorite spot on Lake Monroe. I told her about my first kiss that meant anything. She told me about the first time she smoked weed. I told her about my Russian-speaking Ella Fitzgerald listening Sasha. 
She told me about her Russian-speaking Ella Fitzgerald listening Chris. She referred to Sufjan as Subaru. felt hot. I messed up. I told her I was nervous, and she said not to worry. But Mark, I worry. I have again and again seen boys in hopes of wanting them the way that they want me. Many have been specks on the floor seconds in a year. You're not that. You're a good man, warm and tall and real before me. I didn't treat you like you deserve to be treated. I believe in the golden rule. And I believe I'll get what's coming to me. I expect I'll be used like I've used, and that I can accept. Other parts of myself, I'm still struggling to accept, even if aversely so. I'm trying to accept that I don't like men, and that I'm not a considerate person, and that I've hurt people. I don't expect you to accept an apology, but if you would, I'd still like to talk with you and exchange letters and maybe get coffee sometimes. But I'll pay for my own, and I won't be afraid. Actually, I'd like to pay for yours, because I owe you. I owe you a lot. Maybe really and truly honestly, for the first time. Emily. Come July, Hannah and I didn't really talk anymore, but Mark attended my 21st birthday at a dive bar, and so did Emma, the girl I met on Tinder in mid-May, the girl I've been dating almost six months now. After all this time, I get it. I expected Tinder to deliver me a man who could somehow make me straight. But instead, what it gave me was a long line of people who helped me accept and embrace that I'm not. That was producer Emily Miles. In our last piece today, we go to graduate school. Or rather, ASR producer Rick Brewer takes us there on a tour of what graduate students thought their lives would be like. Soon after I made the decision to pursue a dual master's degree in history and library science at IU Bloomington, I had a lot of expectations of what my life was going to be like. I was expecting to meet a ton of new people and have relationships like I did at my last school. I also thought I was going to be in constant contact with my new peers consulting one another about classes and assignments, and I also expected to feel very underqualified in in my classes with PhD students and that everyone was going to know that I shouldn't be here and that I should not have gotten into this program. But as it turns out, those expectations do not match the reality that I now live. Sure, I've made friends, but I've come to realize that grad school is kind of an awkwardly difficult period in a lot of people's lives. From those in a career change to having a family and children to worry about, and working outside jobs just to get by. Grad school can also be very competitive, and I didn't expect people wouldn't be as inclined to provide feedback on assignments. I was also much more prepared for graduate school than I thought, and I don't feel intimidated by my peers anymore. Well, at least not as often as I used to be. Then there was the surprise of having to juggle administrative tasks and devoting time to professional development and networking. I never saw any of those things coming. I always feel like there's something more I could be doing in graduate school. It's kind of the feeling of someone following you or just constantly staring at you. 
you just always feel like there's the need or the desires to do more. Anyway, it became obvious very quickly that my expectations were not in line with my reality. I mean, it was strikingly different. And I simply wanted to know if others felt the same way. So I talked with some of my peers and colleagues. I had absolutely no idea what to expect. I didn't, I didn't even know grad school was a thing until my later years in undergrad. I was looking forward to working with a community of other scholars who were interested in the same questions that I was interested in, um, a group of people who we could sit down and, and talk and joke and laugh maybe about the same theoretical ideas about um, the areas that we study. I think I imagined that there would be a whole lot more like sitting around and talking about things with people all the time. I'm just taking nine credits per semester in grad school and still it's very stressful. Before I get into grad programs, I was thinking, hmm, maybe I should, I will have too much time and I will be spending, I don't know, for too many fun things or something like that. I think my expectation was it was I, I knew it was going to be I, I I was working when I before I applied to grad school so I think it was going to be a big change in the sense it's I think I, I I knew grad school was going to be kind of less structured than than my working life so it was going to require kind of a lot more uh, self direction. Be introduced to a new way of education curriculum and coming from India and the education system that I was used to, I thought this was going to be really different and probably it might be really tough. I think uh, as far as a work-life balance, I was going to have like at least ample time to sustain my current life uh, prior to business school as far as like working out and being having time to like come home and cook and do like my normal ritual I would do in my uh, current working life. So on the drive up to graduate school, to my graduate program, I stopped to visit a friend who was already in a PhD program in Russian history. And she said to me, she said, whatever you think graduate school is like, it's not like that. It's much more individual. Um, a lot of time spent alone and thinking on your own and a... Um, sense of being in your own silo on your own trying to come up with ideas and um, not even having the confidence to pass it on to another person to look at. So um, much more individualistic than I anticipated. That I have to answer a whole lot more emails than I thought I was going to have to. <laughs> That's actually a one shock. They spend so much. There's a lot of time we have to spend on administrative tasks. And I don't think that I saw that coming ever. I think I forgot how much I hated doing coursework um, and that I just don't like school very much. I gave up a lot of money to come here because I was working in industry before, um, you know, getting paid much better than PhD students get paid. So, uh, you know, I kind of miss, you know, not being poor. Um, I guess actually just how much work it was. <laughs> it was it was more competitive, competitive than I thought it was going to be. And I, we were sort of left on our own quite a bit and left to shift and fend for ourselves a bit. So it was it was a lot more lonely than I thought it was going to be and a lot more isolated than I thought it was going to be. I've had at least one professor describe uh, the PhD process as almost a spiritual journey. Music in this piece comes from Blue Dot Sessions. For American Student Radio, I'm Rick Brewer. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode on American Student Radio, and I'm your host, Jenna Jankowski. We made it to the end, guys. This was my first time hosting, and I made it. Make sure to tune in next week for our take on the Great Thanksgiving Listen with Sophia Salby. Thank you for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students at Indiana University Bloomington. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at ASR Voice. We broadcast new episodes every Sunday at noon on WIOX and stream on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash American-student-radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.